A few years back, my friend Justin Warner from Food Network moved out to South Dakota. He opened a ramen joint, and he is always posting pictures of all the great food he's not only cooking, but eating all over South Dakota. He's always telling me to come visit. And you know, one of the best ways to experience a new place is to eat your way through it. But it's equally important to live your way through it, too. And when you summer in South Dakota, you can fill up on all the lake days, hikes, rides, and small-town strolls that'll leave you with a regained sense of wonder and a hunger to do it all over again. See why there's so much South Dakota, so little time at Travel South Dakota. There's very little dairy in Chinese cooking. There's no cheese no. around. So I understand that you were missing cheese. There was a traveler's cafe by the river where they had packets of sliced processed cheese kept under lock and key. <laughs> And they were very expensive, and they were only catering for the old backpacker. That reminds me, like, when I did study abroad in London, and I was trying to find American cheese. And the yes. only one that I could find was the Safeway brand cheese food product, right. it was called. It looked like yellow wax. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it was like that. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Today, I'm talking with cookbook author Fuchsia Dunlop. Fuchsia spent the past 30 years learning and writing about Chinese cuisine, and more importantly, cooking and eating it. She first visited China in the early 90s, when very few Westerners were traveling there. And she stuck around, immersing herself in China for years at a time, learning the language and studying traditional cooking techniques. Her cookbooks are some of the best-known English-language books on Chinese cooking, and among the few that document the cuisine of specific regions, highlighting how people in China cook and eat today. Her work has introduced many Westerners to the idea that Chinese food is a lot more than orange chicken and crab rangoon. Fuchsia's newest book is called Invitation to a Banquet, the story of Chinese food, and it feels like the culmination of her decades of work. But her journey with Chinese food didn't begin in China. When Fuchsia was growing up in Oxford, England in the 70s and 80s, English food was the butt of jokes. It's come a long way since. Still, as Fuchsia told me... Yes, I had a very unusual food upbringing because um, my mother, for a start, is a great cook. and was very... <laughs> That was the first thing that was unusual. <laughs> well, maybe. Yeah, but also just very open-minded and curious. And so one of her best friends was Indian and he taught her how to make some Indian dishes, which became part of our family repertoire. And then she was working as an English teacher for foreign students in Oxford. And she had students from all over the world. And sometimes they lived with us. So in my childhood, we had living in our home, Turks, Japanese, Italians, and also um, bunches of students would come around for an evening and often cook the food from their home country. So we would have a Japanese evening and all the Japanese students would set up a barbecue in the garden and make all these things. And I found actually some photos of a dinner party that my parents had when I must have been about eight. And the guests included people from Japan, Greece, Sudan, Lebanon, etc. So I was brought up with a rather international diet and not just shepherd's pie and toad in the hole. <laughs> right. And what about Chinese food growing up? Well, the only Chinese food we had was the occasional takeout. Takeaway food was a huge treat, and the options were Indian or Chinese. And um, I think it was rather like American takeout food, so chop suey and chow mein. But also we had this particular um, dish that my sister and I adored, which was sweet and sour pork balls. Mm. So a nugget of pork covered in a sort of doughy batter, deep fried, and then with an absolutely bright red sweet and sour sauce. And this was the super special treat. 
For years, those sweet and sour pork balls were all Fuchsia really knew of Chinese food. After she graduated from college, she got a job at the BBC, editing news articles coming in from the Asia-Pacific region. She started reading more about China and became very interested. So in 1992, she set off on a backpacking trip to Hong Kong and mainland China. She spent time in Chengdu, the capital of Sichuan province, where she made friends with some locals and had some very memorable meals. We went out to a very unexceptional-looking restaurant near the bus station, and we had um, dishes like a whole fish in chili bean sauce and a a cold um, chicken with chili oil dressing. Um, And most of all, I remember huobao yahua, so my friend presented me with this plateful of something that I, I mean, I had no idea what it was. It was all these pretty frilly little bits of something pinkish tossed in a wok with a few vegetables. And um, he said, taste it, and then I'll tell you what it is. And it, I did, and it was delicious. And he said, well, it's pig's kidney. And it was cut in this very artful way, you know, like cut into these little frilly pieces. And um, and it was just delicately savory and so surprising to have transformed this rather clunky piece of offal into something so elegant. That dish was called fire-exploded kidney flowers, flowers because of their frilly shape. On her last day in Chengdu, Fuchsia and her friends went to a tea house on the banks of the river. It was a warm day and we were sitting there sipping jasmine tea and I just decided I'm going to come back and live here. And also, I'd been interested in food and cooking since I was really quite small child. And I knew that that Sichuan was the, or that Chengdu was the headquarters of one of the so-called great regional cuisines of China. When Fuchsia came home from her backpacking trip, her interest in China continued to grow. She took language classes and eventually won a scholarship for a full year of academic study in China. She fulfilled her promise to herself to live in Chengdu, choosing to attend Sichuan University. And so although I came up with all these very academically legitimate reasons for choosing Sichuan University, actually, I thought it would be a great place to live with really good food. <laughs> you had your priorities straight. <laughs> but I mean, it's so funny because my career now looks like this very logical progression. Right. But it absolutely wasn't at the time. I mean, I didn't really know what I wanted to do for a career. But what I did know was that I fancied the idea of going to live in another country and learning another language and sort of having adventures. And so the fact that it was China was a bit arbitrary. But I was kind of looking for any excuse, really. <laughs> and that, that's what's so funny in retrospect, because I can't think of anywhere that would have been more fascinating gastronomically and as a writer writing in English. But it was just, as they say in China, yuan fen, like a sort of serendipitous chance, really, yeah. She arrived in Chengdu for her year of study in 1994, which was in her early 20s. During the Cultural Revolution, China had been famously closed off to the world. When that ended in the mid-70s, there were major economic reforms that encouraged private businesses, international trade, and increased openness to the West. The nation's economy was moving away from agriculture, meaning people were migrating to cities. By the time Fuchsia arrived, those reforms were in full swing, and the country was changing fast. When Fuchsia first came to Chengdu, the city had a population of three and a half million. Today, the population has nearly tripled. It was right on the cusp of a huge redevelopment. So at that time, the city was a maze of old streets with these houses built of bamboo and wood, artisans producing food. You'd have little restaurants, tea houses, medicine shops with drawers full of herbs and a kind of street life that you could recognize if you saw 
paintings of China about 800 years ago. I mean, of course, it was modernized, but it had that kind of traditional feel. And at the very moment that I was there, they had started to to clear the old city. And so week by week, these streets that I was falling in love with were being demolished. So it was a kind of curious time. But it was, there were all these traditions that have now vanished that were very much alive. Like in March, I remember there was a particular period when it was windy and there were all these kite sellers selling beautiful kites hand-painted on paper and bamboo. And the sky was full of them. And then when it was hot, people would sell handmade bamboo fans. So it was very magical. And there were not that many foreign students, but we all fell in love with Chengdu. So how were you perceived? Because as you said, there were not very many Westerners living there at that time. Well, so everything we did attracted attention. So if you cycled across the city people would stop what they were doing and look and often shout hello. <laughs> and then every time, particularly traveling around in more rural places, if if I wanted to buy a bus ticket, a small crowd would gather and people would comment. And so it was sort of, it was very friendly for the most part, but we weren't able to blend into the background. And how did that feel? The whole experience was very surreal and fun and extraordinary. So for the foreign students like me, it was this discovery of um, China and of this particularly appealing and beguiling city, Chengdu. And for local Chinese people, we were usually the first foreigners they'd met. Um, And so it was just all about discovery and surprises. Every day something extraordinary would happen. (laughs) So it was just, you know, maybe the best year of my life. Ostensibly, Fuchsia was in Chengdu to study Chinese policies on ethnic minorities. But she kept inching towards food. She always had an interest in cooking, but while she loved what she was eating in Chengdu, she had no idea how to make it. She began befriending restaurant owners, asking to hang out in the kitchens and observe. Eventually, she and her friend found out about a local cooking school, the Sichuan Institute of Higher Cuisine. We went over there one day and just said, please, can we study here? And after a long negotiation and much banter, sort of bartering and so on, they agreed to give us some private classes. Um, And so he and I did classes twice a week for a month or two and learned how to make some of the classic dishes. And it was... Was the bartering just the cost or were there other things that needed to be negotiated? Well, I think they hadn't really done this before. So it was just, this is what China was like at the time, that the society was changing. All these things were becoming possible that hadn't been possible before. So everyone was making it up as they went along. And so some foreigners come and they want to study here. Well, how do we actually handle it? It wasn't clear. Right. <laughs> so, there's, not, there's, not, there's nothing about this in the handbook. Exactly. But it, again, it was fun for us and it was fun for them. I think they found it right. very intriguing that we were so fascinated. After her year of study was up, Fuchsia didn't feel quite ready to go home. So she stuck around Chengdu. One day, she rode her bike over to the cooking school to say hello to her old teachers and ask if she could maybe watch some demonstrations. To her surprise, the principal invited her to join a three-month-long professional chef's training course. She said yes on the spot. 
they had never had a foreign student. It wasn't, as you say, in the handbook. And so I just enrolled and they gave me a Chinese cleaver and some chef's whites. And that was it. And I was in this class of about 50 young Sichuanese men to two other women just learning how to cook. And it was fantastically fun and very challenging. All of Fuchsia's classes were in a Sichuan dialect, Mandarin, and her textbooks were full of highly specific, very technical terms. For instance, she learned the characters for a term that translates to slow braising with a gently simmering sauce that makes a sound like gudu 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 gudu. She even learned to make those fire-exploded kidney flowers she remembered tasting on her first visit to Chengdu. Each day when it was time for the students to show their teachers what they'd cooked, it was especially stressful for Fuchsia. Obviously, I felt on the line as the only foreigner and one of very few women. And the other nine boys in my group were um, very sceptical. <laughs> I mean, they'd, they'd never met a foreigner before. And so, obviously, it was slightly nerve-wracking. But I, we were all learning together. And my cooking was, you know, as good as in up and down as the other students. Right. And so it was fine. At the same time that you're getting increasingly immersed in the food of Sichuan in particular, what was the perception of the people there of Western food? Oh, terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that's so funny. I mean, there's a lot of Western prejudice about Chinese food, but there's also Chinese prejudice about Western food. And at that time, people just hadn't really had the chance to taste Western food. I was there just before the first KFC opened, for example. There were no pizzas, nobody had ever had cheese. And so people talked about Xichan, Western food, as if it was one cuisine, just as we talk about Chinese food in a way. And then the most common damning stereotype, which is still very current today, is that which means that Western food is very simple and very monotonous. <laughs> so people thought that it was just hamburgers and sandwiches. And then when I tried occasionally to cook yeah, Western what, what, food. What would happen people, when you tried to change their minds? Very disastrous. I mean, they, <laughs> I, made, I once tried to make roast beef and roast potatoes and then apple crumble for some Chinese friends. And they just, they couldn't believe that one would invite guests and have so few dishes. They didn't really like beef. And they, Sichuan food is normally highly seasoned. And they just, um, they wanted rice with it. And then they had second helpings with the, actually the apple crumble with the beef, because in China, you don't really have a dessert course. So it was all very interesting cultural scramble. And they definitely were not impressed. <laughs> In her new book, Fuchsia writes that a martial artist or a musician only learns through practice. It's the same for a professional eater. During those early days in China, Fuchsia practiced a lot. Out of a mixture of polite English upbringing and genuine curiosity, she made it a point to eat whatever was placed in front of her. But even after two years of living in Chengdu, she says she was still eating like a European. There's a whole sort of aspect of Chinese gastronomy, which is completely alien to Western tastes, which is the appreciation of texture. And China, for Chinese people, I think texture is as important as taste. So when people are expressing, describing food or expressing appreciation, they always talk about the kogan or mouthfeel as well as the taste. So eating is a, a whole sensory experience and texture is important. And 
that partly is why the Chinese eat a whole range of foods that are mysterious or even revolting to Westerners. So mysterious in the sense that there are many ingredients that have no taste at all but are just textural, like jellyfish, which is slithery, crisp, transparent sheets or something with no flavor whatsoever, and also gristly things like chicken cartilage, intricate morsels like chicken's feet and duck's tongues. And they're all most enjoyable if you enjoy the playful interaction between tongue and teeth and your food. And Westerners, as a rule, don't. And so I always ate everything very politely and I would go out for hot pot and my friends would order goose intestines and um, which is actually the rubbery aortas of pigs and cattle and all these other rubbery, slithery things. And so I would eat them. But as far as I was concerned, it was just like eating rubber bands. I mean, what was the point? I had no pleasure. I was just doing it out of duty. So that's what I mean by the saying that I was eating like a European. After two years in China, Fuchsia realized something had changed. Now she was eating these foods not out of politeness, but because she truly liked them. When my parents came to visit me in Chengdu, I took them out for hot pot. And Sichuan hot pot, the most popular ingredients for Sichuanese people to dip into their spicy cauldron of chilies and Sichuan pepper are all the slithery, rubbery things. So I was there with my parents. And completely without thinking about it, I ordered things like you know, duck or goose intestines and these rubbery foods. And then when I saw my father trying very politely to eat all these things, I suddenly I suddenly realized, you know, I hadn't even thought that's going to be really unpleasant for him or challenging. Right. And I'd just forgotten. And so I think it was moments like that that made me realize that I, I was not eating in the same outsider way that I had been before. As I tell Fuchsia, a while back, I was at a Chinese restaurant and I ordered duck tongues. I love duck and wanted to try it out. They're smaller than your pinky finger. There's not really meat on them. They've got a sort of a rubbery skin and a few little prongs of cartilage inside. I loved the flavor, but I'll admit the texture was unfamiliar to me. I also just had the sense that I was eating them wrong. So I asked Fuchsia, what is the best way to eat duck tongues? Obviously, you can't eat something like that with a knife and fork. And you can't eat it in what, for an English person, would be a very polite way. So what you do is with chopsticks, which are ideal for sort of nibbling at things, you you, you would um, put it to your mouth and um, sort of use your teeth and tongue to negotiate the bits of the edible bits off the prongs that you can't eat, and then the the the, the cartilage that you can then take it out with your chopsticks, or even maybe raise your rice bowl and gently spit them out. So yes, it, ha- it has what my father always called high grapple factor. Um, so it's not straightforward to eat, and that's the whole point. It's not about the destination; it's about the pleasure of the journey. It sounds like y- you also had to get past some of your own. Western preconceptions to to make that leap. Well, yes, and and I think the f- the first preconception was just, I mean, it was an unconscious preconception that it was pointless eating things that didn't have any flavor or pointless eating them for the texture. But also, I mean, the the underlying notion that I think we're kind of programmed to have in the West is, is that like big pieces of meat are sort of the pinnacle of quality, luxury, uh, and the other bits and pieces of the animal are the things you eat when you can't afford the big piece of meat. Yes, exactly. 
And in, in China, it's very different. So partly, I think, because the pleasure of Chinese cuisine lies in infinite variety. If you're having even quite a simple home meal, you might have several dishes. And it's all about contrast. So you, you have a mouthful of something that may be strong tasting, and then you have a mouthful of something that's more delicate. You have something that's dry and crisp, and then you have something soupy. It's all about variety. So munching your way through a uniform slab of meat is just less interesting from a Chinese point of view than the variegated textures and tastes in, say, a fish head. There's also the idea of privilege. The privilege lies in having the things that are very scarce, like every duck just has one tiny little tongue. It's an extraordinary privilege because you're getting this tiny prized little morsel and all the other people are just getting the duck breast or whatever. Right, there's a lot of bites of duck meat on a duck. There's only one bite of duck tongue. Exactly. As Fuchsia wrapped up her time at the Sichuan Institute of Higher Cooking, she began to think about writing a Sichuanese cookbook. This was before the era of highly regional cookbooks, and Fuchsia didn't see any other books out there quite like the ones she wanted to write. So she decided to give it a shot. She moved back to England and began pitching the book. Her initial proposal was rejected by six publishers, but eventually she got a book deal. In 2001, Sichuan Cookery was published. The U.S. version, retitled Land of Plenty, came out a couple years later. The book was a hit. And at the time, with the internet still in its relative infancy, this book was one of the few places for English speakers to find traditional recipes for Sichuanese dishes, like Mapo tofu, dry fried green beans, and many more. As the New York Times noted in 2007, while there were plenty of English-language regional cookbooks about France and Italy, the same didn't exist for China until Land of Plenty came along. After that success, Fuchsia began to think about a second cookbook. Where should her next adventure take her? She decided to immerse herself in the Chinese province of Hunan. But her experience there would be so intense, she thought she might give up her Chinese food writing career for good. We'll hear about that when we come back. Stick around. A delicious word from our sponsors. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool, Almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the choice hotels take care of all the other stuff too, but I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. 
And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. They got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. Are you ready for warmer weather? I know I am. But is your wardrobe ready? I just stocked up on spring and summer clothing at Quince. And let me tell you something. I'm feeling great about everything I got. I got a couple of short sleeve button-down shirts, polo shirt, some shorts. Everything feels great. It's super high quality. And I can't believe how much stuff I got at a reasonable price. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Whatever you need for the spring and summer, Quince has your back. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash sporkful for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sporkful to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash sporkful. I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's Sticks? They're wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate. I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. Hey, two quick things. First, a reminder that we have signed Cascatelli posters for sale. You can add on optional boxes of Cascatelli. It's a great holiday gift. You can get those at sporkful.com slash merch. And if you want to give the gift of a signed copy of my forthcoming cookbook this holiday season, head on over to sfolini.com. That's S-F-O-G-L-I-N-I.com. Finally, it's that time of year. I want to hear your New Year's food resolutions. What food do you resolve to eat more of in the new year and why? Send a voice memo to me at hello at sporkful.com. Tell me your name, your location, and the food you resolve to eat more of and why. And we just might feature you in our annual year-end episode. Again, send your voice memo to me at hello at sporkful.com. Thanks. Now back to my conversation with author Fuchsia Dunlop, whose new book is Invitation to a Banquet, the Story of Chinese Food. In 2003, after the success of her first book, Fuchsia decided her second cookbook would highlight the cuisine of a different region in China, Hunan province. I mean, in retrospect, it was a slightly mad decision because <laughs> I didn't know that much about it. But I thought I liked the spice of Sichuan and Hunan is another famously spicy province. And it was also something that had been unexplored in writing in English. And that was about it. So it was quite arbitrary. 
Not the first arbitrary decision that you made, Fuchsia. No. (laughs) But after being so comfortable in Sichuan, Hunan was something of a rude awakening. Fuchsia didn't know anyone who lived in Hunan. The dialect was different, and there were even fewer foreigners than there had been in Sichuan. And so I was essentially on my own. So it, it wasn't an extension of Sichuan. It was another place with its own very strong identity and language. So it was very difficult at first and lonely. And I did wonder if I was really committed to doing this project or not. But Fuchsia stuck it out, spending several years immersing herself in Hunan to write her second book. I think I had just very much adapted to being in Hunan. And it was wonderful, but it was just, um, I just felt a bit lost. China was so separate from the rest of my life. So people I knew in China, uh, most of them didn't speak English. They'd never been abroad. They'd never eaten Western food. They didn't really know anything about where I came from. A lot of it was pre-email. It was too expensive to call home. And then meanwhile, my family and friends in England didn't really know anything about China at all. So it was very disconnected. It must be hard to feel like you have two halves of your existence that are so separate from each other. Yes, it was very hard. It be yeah. disorienting, I would imagine. Exactly, exactly. And I used to always find the first few days in China a bit difficult. And I found it much easier when I would go and spend a couple of days first in Hong Kong or Shanghai or Beijing and then go to a place where I was the only foreigner and no one spoke English. Fuchsia describes these stopovers in Hong Kong as almost like going through a pressurized chamber. Like, if she transitions too fast between England and mainland China, she'll get the bends. Fuchsia's second cookbook would be called Revolutionary Chinese Cookbook, Recipes from Hunan Province. She decided to make the book jacket communist red and sprinkled the pages with the iconography of Mao Zedong, who led the Cultural Revolution. Mao's regime murdered millions of Chinese in its efforts to consolidate power. Mao is from Hunan Province, and his image remains a common sight in the region. But back home, Fuchsia got some backlash for her design choice. I just felt that I had been so immersed in China and in Hunan that I was just used to seeing um, Mao, his image dangling from the windscreen in taxis and on the walls of people's houses, and that I was not assessing him as a political figure. I was just seeing him as part of the normal backdrop of everyday life. Fuchsia had so thoroughly immersed herself in Hunan, she was seeing Mao's image the way many locals see it. In her memoir, she writes that it was in Hunan where she really lost herself in China. I was just completely in a Chinese environment in China, and I I did feel that I was sort of losing touch with where I came from. <laughs> How did that realization feel? Well, it was just it was just a bit strange, and um, and I I felt that I'm I'm very adaptable, which is one of the reasons that I've been able to do what I do. But I think sometimes there is a cost because you do want to always know <laughs> your roots and where you come from. Fuchsia says these days it is a little easier to transition between England and China. With the internet and cell phones, the two worlds are more connected. But that first time coming back from Hunan, re-entering Western society after being so deeply embedded, she says it was so intense that for a while she thought she might be done working in China for good. Oh, yeah, I've had several moments because it's just that I absolutely love what I do and it's endlessly fascinating, but it's quite difficult. It takes a lot of time and immersion, like some of my cookbooks take years. I don't want to go in cold and just sort of 
quickly go and hoover up information and write a book. I want to feel connected to the place and and feel connected to people and have real friends and just just I want it to get a bit under my skin. There have been a few moments when I just got fed up with it and thought, why don't I just have an easy life and go home, you know, and right. be a normal normal English person. Um, <laughs> But then always, whenever I felt like that, I would meet someone in China, sometimes people who would really appreciate what I was doing or who would say, come to my province and write about half it. Or, or I would just feel just, just this old kind of magic again. A year after she published her Hunan cookbook, Fuchsia returned once again to China. She says at first, her heart wasn't in it. She was still weary from the experience she'd had in Hunan. But then she visited the city of Yangzhou in Jiangsu province. She took a bicycle rickshaw through the old streets, which hadn't been demolished in favor of skyscrapers. She walked through landscaped gardens and watched people selling pheasants and baskets of fruit along the canal. And of course, she ate. Steamed buns stuffed with radish livers, fried peanuts and cubes of fermented bean curd, sweet and sour cucumber. Fuchsia writes that she had the sense there of a city being rescued and reborn from the ashes of the Cultural Revolution and of hope in a Chinese future that was more than just rampant capitalism. For her, the magic was back. From there, four more cookbooks and a memoir followed. Today, more than 20 years after the publication of her first cookbook, Fuchsia is known as one of the English-speaking world's foremost authorities on regional Chinese cuisine. Her new book isn't a cookbook or a memoir. It's called Invitation to a Banquet, And as she puts it, it's the story of Chinese food, told in the form of the stories behind 30 dishes, from bitter melon and pork rib soup to rinsed mutton hot pot to Chongqing chicken and a pile of chilies. So what I wanted to do was just to look at, you know, what Chinese food is, you know, why have Westerners misconstrued it? And why have they had so many ridiculous stereotypes about Chinese food? What makes it Chinese? Historically, materially, like in terms of ingredients, technically in terms of cooking methods, and then sort of emotionally and philosophically. I just really wanted to to um, encourage readers to open their minds to Chinese food as being this very diverse and interesting and ancient and very developed culture. <laughs> you know, it's not, there's, there's nothing wrong with takeaway food or, you know, the American Chinese food. It's great and it's popular, but there's so much more to Chinese food than that. One of the other misconceptions that you take on in the book is, is this notion that Chinese food is unhealthy. It may be that Chinese takeout food in the West is not the healthiest. But as you said, that's not a representation. You make the case that possibly more than any other culture, Chinese people see an incredibly strong connection between what you eat and your health. Of all the Western stereotypes of Chinese food, this is the most ridiculous that it's unhealthy. Because really, through the beginning, from the beginnings of Chinese civilization, like the earliest Chinese recipes were manuscripts of tonic medicinal recipes. Like prescriptions. Prescriptions, yeah. And um, the Chinese have always understood that diet is the basis of health, and they've always seen food as being medicine. And there's also great consideration given to not just like if you don't feel well, eat this, but also like when you decide what to eat and how it's going to make you feel, you should also be thinking about how you're going to feel after you eat it. 
sometimes in the West, especially in America, there's sort of a celebration of gluttony sometimes. And it's sort of like, yeah, you're going to feel like crap after you eat this. But like while you're eating it, you'll feel great. But it sounds like in Chinese culture, you would never divorce the eating the food from how it makes you feel after you eat it. No, as you say, I think good food in the West is all about immediate sensory pleasure. I had dinner at one of I mean, probably the most famous restaurant in Britain, the Fat Dark, with a Malaysian Chinese friend who was very keen to go there. And we had the most wonderful feast. I mean, it was an incredible meal. But afterwards, my friend pointed out that the last few courses had all been sweet and heavy. And in China, a well-planned banquet is designed to also make you feel good. So you'll have some rich and opulent and heavy dishes, but you'll also have some very light broths, some understated dishes, and you'll typically finish with something very light, like fresh fruit, or in Sichuan, you finish with a broth, a refreshing broth. And she just said, you know, this has all been wonderful, but now I feel pretty much comatose. (laughs) (laughs) And if we were in China, even if we'd had a spectacular banquet of 40 courses, um, it would have taken us to a place of feeling shufu, well and comfortable, and we would have finished with something light, and then we'd go home and have a good night's sleep. And, And that really struck me. As I said, Invitation to a Banquet looks at Chinese food history through specific dishes. And one story in particular blew my mind. This was a big one for me, Fuchsia. Mapo tofu is new? <laughs> like, I would have guessed that that was one of the ancient recipes. No, no. Late 19th century. It's 125 years old, give or take. By Chinese standards, that makes it, like, hot off the shelves. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, but I I suppose it's, I mean, I think that people become very attached to ideas of culinary history and handing down recipes and and authenticity and so on. But I think the point is that a cuisine is a very much a living form of culture that is reinvented every single day and every, every single time you cook a recipe. And it's always in a state of flux. And the best example of that for me is just the chili in Sichuan, because that's a relatively recent import from the Americas. You know, it was first seen in China late 16th century and wasn't established in Sichuan until, you know, sometime later. We don't know exactly when. Um, And now you cannot imagine um, Sichuanese food without the chili. Yes, and and Mapo Dofu. So there was a, a woman restaurateur, Mrs. Chen, who invented it in the north of Chengdu in the late 19th century, and the dish bears her name, Chen Ma Po, which means pockmarked old mother Chen, okay. which sounds pretty rude in English, but is meant very affectionately. <laughs> <laughs> For decades after she first visited China, Fuchsia experienced the country's increasing openness. But over the past 10 years, she's watched the country move in a different direction. In 2012, President Xi Jinping launched an anti-corruption campaign, which The New Yorker magazine has called a vast machine of arrest and detention. Under this campaign, The New Yorker reports, more than 4 million people have been investigated and punished, and many of those wound up in courts that have a 99% conviction rate. This past May, Fuchsia returned to China for the first time since the pandemic. She says the country felt different. The thing that was most striking was that there were almost no foreigners. So, uh, you know, as I've said earlier, when I was first in China, there were very few foreigners. We were very conspicuous. um, And it felt a bit like that again. And that, for me, it was strange. And I do feel that... um, 
right at the beginning, when I was writing about Chinese food um, in the 1990s, Westerners had very negative or ignorant views about China. They didn't know much about it at all. So I was really very much writing, trying to... Um, trying to encourage Western people to relate to China and by writing about the food and the people and the context. And then in the intervening sort of couple of decades, there was this great excitement in the West about China. Everyone was going there and saying, oh, wow, Shanghai is so modern and this great optimism. And now again, we're in a period of great geopolitical tensions and separation. And so you know, on the one hand, it's a real shame. For, you know, I'm someone who is in the business of cultural exchange and relation and dialogue. But on the other hand, it makes me feel more committed to what I do. I mean, we have to remember the humanity of other cultures. We have to try to understand each other. We have to talk to each other. And um, China is a huge and complex country with many layers to it and many aspects to it. And I think that food is a really good way of of relating to China and understanding something that is beyond all the headlines and is something else at this very difficult time. How has your relationship with Chinese food and culture changed in more recent years? How would you characterize it today? It's very deeply ingrained. Obviously, Chinese food is not part of my heritage and my ancestry, but I've been speaking Chinese and deeply involved in China and Chinese food for more than half my life. And so when I think of the, the dishes and the places and the food that um, target my heartstrings and make me feel kind of romantic and nostalgic, then they're as likely or more likely to be Chinese as they are English. That's cookbook author Fuchsia Dunlop. She currently lives in London, and she's the author of seven books about Chinese cuisine. Her newest is called Invitation to a Banquet. It's out now. And we're doing a giveaway of that new book right now. If you want to enter to win Fuchsia's new book, all you have to do is sign up for the Sporkful newsletter at sporkful.com slash newsletter by December 17th. You may have noticed that we do a lot of giveaways through our newsletter, so you really want to be on that list, because if you don't win this prize, you might win the next one. If you're already on our list, you're automatically entered to win this and all of our giveaways open to U.S. and Canada addresses only. Again, please sign up at sporkful.com slash newsletter. Next week on the show, it's time for Salad Spinner Year End Edition. We're going to do a retrospective on the year in food. We'll bring you the quirky, the silly, the surprising, the substantive, everything you need to know, and a few stories you forgot from this year in the world of food with some very special guests. That's next week. By the way, for that one, check out last week's episode about the restaurant where all the chefs are grandmas. That one's up now. This show is produced by me along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producers Andres O'Hara and Johanna Mayer. Editing by Nora Ritchie. Our engineer is Jared O'Connell. And our intern is Julia Russo. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher Studios. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Nora Ritchie. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And we're Barbara and Bruce from North Aurora, Illinois, reminding you to eat eat more, more, eat eat better, better, and eat eat more better. better. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 